Welcome back to another episode of Mormon Traditionalist Podcast. My name is Jaron O'Driscoll, and I am your host. Good to be back with you again today, folks. We're going to dive right in here into part two of my interview with Steve Smoot about uh, how evidence for the Nephite civilization was the target of the original cancel culture movement. Before we get into it, though, remember to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to this podcast. It helps get this show in front of other traditionalists like you. Now, let's get into the episode. So did these early men of science and government looking to advance this manifest destiny agenda work to silence the knowledge of these ancient civilizations? Well, yes, you got to think so. Now, we all have kind of defining moments in our lives, which inspires our own personal research. For me, like maybe many of you that might be listening, it was in search for the promised land which we read about in the scriptures, a land choice above all other lands, the land of liberty, the land of the Gentiles, a land where prophecies and promises given would be fulfilled, a land where New Jerusalem would be built, a land where Christ will come and dwell. So is the United States that land, uh, that promised land? In my research of that promised land, it really led me to really study the archaeological sites and come to understand these ancient mound-building cultures. And upon the 1830 publication of the Book of Mormon, where did Joseph Smith send on a mission? He sent his most loyalist followers. As recorded, you know, in Parley P. Pratt's autobiographies, it states, It was now October 1830. A revelation had been given through the mouth of his prophet, seer, and translator, in which Oliver Cowdery, Peter Whitmer, Zebi Peterson, and myself were appointed to go into the wilderness, to the Indian Territory. After traveling for some days, we called on the Indian nations near Buffalo and spent part of the day with them, instructing them on the knowledge and record of their forefathers. We were kindly received, and much interest was manifest by them in hearing this news, unquote. We had preached the gospel in the fullness and distributed a record of their forefathers among three tribes, the Cataract Indians of Buffalo, New York, the Watnots of Ohio, and the Delaware Indians of Missouri, unquote. This is found on page 66 of Revelations in Context. Now, the Delaware Indians chief requested that the missionaries return in the spring. However, because of an order by then, the federal agent, William Clark, the missionaries were expelled from the Indian Territory and basically told if they came back that they would be incarcerated. Joseph Smith's outreach to the American Indian populations and tribal leaders, however, was not looked on very favorably by these early men in science and government, as he was telling them, you know, that they were of Hebrew descent and of a more highly advanced culture than they have been so diligent in working to silence. The government officials over Indian affairs were concerned that Joseph Smith's ideologies were really going contrary to their manifest destiny agenda. Now, David Whitmer, One of the three special witnesses of the Book of Mormon stated, 
when we were first told to publish our statement, the testimony of the three witnesses, we felt sure that the people would not believe it. For the Book of Mormon told of a people who were educated, refined, and dwelt in large cities. The Lord told us that he would make it known to the people and that he would lead them to discover the ruins of great cities, evidence of the truth of what was written in the book. Now, this quote can be found in Tadar Callister's book, The Case for the Book of Mormon, page 44. So, are there ruins of great cities found in North America and abundance of evidence as promised? After visiting so many of these sites and studying this ancient history for decades, uh, yes, there are these amazing sites. Also, both uh, LeGrand Richards and later Elder Tadar Callister shared that even Joseph Smith had concerns with how the Book of Mormon might be received as this movement, you know, to really view the Indians as savages was rolling forward. So he prayed, O Lord, what will the world say? And the answer came back, fear not, I will cause the earth to testify of the truth of these things. Uh, you can find that in the case of the Book of Mormon, page 42, uh, Tad R. Callister, author. Given that the Book of Mormon described a culture more advanced than we've been led to believe, so in this presentation, I want you to think back of the advanced evidences that show that there were more refined cultures uh, here in North America, found in different areas. For example, if you look back on Squire and Davis's book, it shows these giant geometric earthworks that they had gone out and surveyed, which show evidence of these giant circles and squares, which were very symbolic of heaven and earth. These reoccurring ceremonial sites give evidence of a centralized government designed by some master architect. Now, there is a site that you can go visit that's very fascinating. It's called Fortified Hill. It's located in Butler County, Ohio. It was surveyed in 1836 and made part of the very first publication of the Smithsonian, the ancient monuments of the Mississippi Valley. This survey shows a masterful designed fortification with an ingenious places of entrance. Now, found in the Book of Mormon is a discussion on how the Nephites built their fortifications. In Alma 49 and 18, verse 18, it states, they could not get into their fort of security by any other way save it by the entrance because of the highness of the banks that were thrown up and the depth of the ditches that were dug round about. Save it was by the entrance. And so what they did, designed was really almost a gauntlet that you'd have to run through. And they would have these breastworks of timber on the inner banks where they could throw down spears or arrows, could be shot at those armies that would intrude their sanctuary. Today, many fortifications and areas of refuge have been found in America's heartland, showing amazing strategic planning. 
that went into the design of these fortifications. So when attacking armies would come, they would be divided up. They'd have run through these gauntlets, which was a complex maze, and the defending armies would have the opportunity you know, to uh, reduce the forces. Now, one of the earliest writers to explore these ruins into the origin of the Indian was James Adair, who traded and resided among the Indians for some 40 years, where he was encouraged to write a book in 1875 entitled The History of the American Indians. In it, he stated, as I traded among the Indian Americans, I was forced to believe them descendants of the Israelites. This descent I shall endeavor to prove by religious rites, civil and marital customs, funeral ceremonies, manners, language, and traditions. In James Adair's 1775 book, in the early chapters, I found it really interesting. Just even the chapter headings tells a story. For example, chapter one, he pointed out, that their division into tribes, just like the children of Israel, the Indians were divided into various tribes with a chief over each tribe. And then chapter 2, he wrote, their worship of Jehovah. In page 30, Adair states that they worship various gods, Jehovah or Elohim. Now, they, in their writing and spelling, was more of a Hebrew writing. And they spell it kind of three different ways. Uh, Yohevah and a couple of other spellings that I'm not going to try to pronounce. But those spellings, which are very similar to Jehovah, for they viewed their God as the great I Am. Now, Adair would go on to state that they would dance in a bowing position, dancing in a circle, repeating the words, Hallelujah, Yohevah, kind of Hallelujah, Yohevah, Hallelujah, Yohevah. Now, the Cherokee Indians' language is a little bit different the way they pronounce it. It's uh, Yehovah, and the Lakota Indians also have a little different spelling. Now, the four letters that kind of symbolize Jehovah Yoheva is W H W H. And this symbol is really found on both hemispheres and even found in diverse cultures, from the Hopi Indians to early cultures of uh, Judaism dating back to 700 BC. And some of the other chapters we find interesting is chapter three. They're Notions of theocracy, how they view God. The fourth chapter, their belief in the ministering of angels. The fifth chapter, their language and dialects. The sixth chapter, their manners of accounting time. And he was making the comparison to the Hebrews. Their prophets and high priests, their festivals, fasts, and religious rites and their daily sacrifices. It's actually in, in this book, they have over 23 chapters that all point to the understanding that these people had of the ancient inhabitants of here in North America.
Now, a man in the 1800s that would become and provide great insight into America's ancient mound building cultures was Constance Samuel Raffinesque, who grew up in Marcellus, France. And after a prior visit to America, Constantine decided to settle in America in 1850. He stated that he went on foot through the whole of Ohio by Chillicothe, Lancaster, and Zinsville. It was near Chillicothe that he saw the great pyramids and alders of the ancient nations of North America. They struck him with great astonishment and induced him to study them. He was a prolific writer, and Constantine authored a three-volume work, The American Nation, Ancient and Modern. It was printed in Philadelphia in 1836. Now, in these books, Constantine stated that he had met with the Oneida, the Choctaw, the Mohicans, and the Lenaida Lapai tribes. His studies led him to review the whole and primitive archaeology in order to obtain satisfactory results. It was Constantine that first petitioned Congress to establish the Smithsonian, in which he did in 1846. Even though some of these early men of science and government didn't really like this Frenchman, his work would have a real influence on the early men of science. Now, Lewis Henry Morgan and E.G. Squires and others were influenced by the writings of Constantine. He not only brought the mounds scattered through the Ohio Valley to the notice of the scientific world, but he developed a theory of evolution that predated Charles Darwin by some 20 years. So in asking myself what satisfactory results was Constantine looking for, it led me to study his surveys, fieldwork, and writings into these ancient monuments and the tribes that he took a special interest in. Uh, one of the tribes that he took a special interest in was the Lanai Lenapai tribe, which in more commonly known as the Delaware Indians, who are of the Algonquin linguistic family. In this tribe is found one of the highest concentrations of haplogroup DNA, which shows of Hebrew descent. Now, in studying the 1842 census, role of this tribe, there was listed some 260 family names. Some of these family names you find very interesting. There were 69 family names who was the last name David, 254 family names with last name Levi, 253 family names, last name Israel, and 519 family names of that of Samuel and 216 families with the last name Nephahite. So how did Joseph Smith view these ancient inhabitants of this land here in America? Well, we know that Joseph Smith stated, and this is found in the teachings of Joseph Smith, page 136, and also the History of the Church, volume 4, page 538. He stated, I was also informed concerning the aboriginal inhabitants of this country and shown who they were and from whence they came. The remnant are the Indians that now inhabit this country. 
Now, this country is really a demonstrative, which points direction. It wasn't that country. It wasn't those countries. It was this country, which is where he was standing, that which was underfoot. Now, by it, referring to the Book of Mormon, as we read the Wentworth letter, it states that we learn that the Western tribes of Indians are descendants of that Joseph who was sold into Egypt, and that the land of America is a promised land unto them. This view of the Indians would really go contrary to this manifest destiny agenda, which was very much about gathering up the Indians and taking the lands away from them, and really viewing the Indians as a primitive culture, seeing them that they weren't evolved to the state of a full human. So did political and religious and social uh, agendas lead to the loss of these ancient archaeological sites and fortifications and the silence that we have found surrounding these ancient uh, mound-building cultures? You really have to think so, because there is a lot of science, really from the Copper Age to the Bronze Age on to the Iron Age. Every ancient explorer that came into the Americas was in pursuit of precious metals, found in rich abundance here uh, in uh, North, North America. And that has been another record that has really been silenced. In visiting these various mound sites and museums, we saw photos of skeletons showing the copper headplates and breastplates was used in battle, along with metal tools and weapons. A lot of copper was being mined and shipped off to many foreign shores. The area that boasts some of the purest copper found in the world was found in Michigan around Lake Superior. The account of the ancient mines discovered are over 5,000 ancient mines found in just Isles Royale alone. It is estimated there is over a half a million tons of copper that came out of those ancient mines, traded to copper-hungry visitors visiting America from foreign shores. Other ancient mineral-rich areas that's found here in the Americas are found in Wisconsin, Tennessee, Georgia, and southern Ohio. As we visited some of these museums, it was just amazing to see how much copper. We saw these thin copper leaves that were found in the Okamokee Mound site in Macon, Georgia, for example, showing evidence of their ability to refine metals. Found off the banks of the Arkansas River in eastern Oklahoma is the Spiral Mound site. This mound site is spread over 100 acres of land. At this site, there were found large quantities of refined copper, plated uh, copper art, and copper ear spools. In reading from the Smithsonian's Institution uh, Bureau of Ethnology annual report, and this is actually a 675-page report that William H. Holmes, who authored you know, this particular ch chapter, and he worked under who? Who was over to the Ethnology Department of the Smithsonian? Uh, John Wesley Powell. And Holmes stated, a general review of the contents of the grave show that the ancient inhabitants were skillful, 
in the manipulation of stone, gold, copper, and clay, and tombs of undoubtedly great antiquity, which yield evidence of a long-continued culture. In North America, ornaments of stone were seldom used by them, but those of gold and copper were common. And this is from the Smithsonian Institution's Bureau of Ethnology report. It's actually a 675-page annual report was given. And it just so happened that the director of the Smithsonian's Ethnology Department was uh, John Wesley Powell. Now, historians from many foreign lands share their history of these pre-Columbian voyages. From the Vikings to the Assyrians to the Phoenicians to the Greeks to the Egyptians to the Jews, the Polynesians, the Japanese, the Chinese, uh, the Welsh, they all had seafaring vessels capable of braving the ocean. Driven by prevailing winds, they visited many foreign shores. A graft which shows this, I was in Italy, there at the Smithsonian, that shows the migration and that there were explorers visiting uh, many sites around the world, that Columbus wasn't the first to, to visit the shores of America. Now, Princeton professor Robert P. George, when speaking at BYU, he stated, uh, much of what we know about ancient history is just propaganda. For according to the biblical timeline, we know that many cultures built ships anciently. We know about Noah, who built a giant barge about 4,300 years ago, and that many came and left from the shores of the Americas. Found in 1 Kings chapter 5, it tells the story of King Solomon, who had amassed a large naval force at the very same time in history that the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of Egypt and Ethiopia, was credited of having over 400 seafaring ships capable of braving the ocean worldwide. So besides the routes being established east and west, how about the routes that were being established north and south, up and down the rivers of America's heartland? Were trade routes being established? I mean, found to be traded in Central America and South America, for example, was mica from Ohio. The Mayan blue dye that you see, Chichen and Tulum, that came from clays found in the state of Georgia they have found. Also found in the Hopewell Mounds was obsidian, a glass-like stone of volcanic origin, used for their spears and arrowheads. Also, you know, found from Central and South America. So was there trading routes being established? And like the scenarios of other parts of, of, the, of the world, were these rivers and waterways, were they trading up, up and down them? And were they trading partners? I mean, you find obsidian, which is, you know, commonplace up in the Northeast. You find those, and that obsidian came from the areas of Chichen Itza and Tulum and other sites in South America. So there was a lot of trading going on. 
one crop that was being traded was that of tobacco. Tobacco was actually a native crop of North America, which was being cultivated in the heartland of the Hopewell country. Tobacco was in great demand anciently, commonly traded like money is today. Found in the Hopewell mounds were these tobacco platform pipes credited you know, to the Hopewell. These are signature Hopewell. Found in Central and South America were these same design type pipes, which you know, really begs the question, were they trading partners? And yes, you got to think so. A slide that I produced in uh, my presentations, I kind of listed over 40 ancient archaeological sites and listed their public dates. These archaeological sites found here in North America and listed them in the chronological order. And what it kind of shows is that there was an upward migration take place from the lower areas that you'd find down in Georgia and Florida, migrating up the rivers, up in the more mineral-rich areas in North America. And so were the Hopewell, the Adena, who were building these giant earthworks, mounds and fortifications, were they trading partners to these uh, ancient cultures? And if they had built these great civilizations that you find up in the Northeast, were built by the Hopewell and the Adena cultures, and you find that through war, that their cities were being burnt down, they would take flight. And since they, some of them even arrived in boats, they would take flight down some of the many rivers and waterways that would lead to probably a safer and warmer climates. But as they came down these various waterways, it wasn't usually a flight into safety. It was a flight into slavery. As raiding parties would take them captive and they would be placed into slavery. And this was kind of the timeline as I listened to these various sites that would show this kind of migration. And so really one of the most obscure topics really not covered in our ancient American history textbooks is the extent that the ancient slave trade was taking place really between North and South America. Throughout history, we find that almost every giant earthen construction of ancient times was constructed under the yoke of slave labor, from the giant pyramids of Egypt to the great Colosseums of Rome to the Great Wall of China, to the ruins of South, Central and South America, they all use slave labor. So how common was slavery among the Indian populations? Well, some historians believe that the ancient populations of America, both North and South, were heavily involved in the slave business in one way or another, either as captives or as slavers. Some Native American tribes held captives and slaves prior and even during the European colonization. One of the new insights that I found interesting in my latest visit to these ancient archaeological sites was how widespread the ancient slave trade was. By at least A.D. 200, slave trade routes were well established to both North and South America. Now, one of the most convincing findings that I found which gives evidence of the geographical setting 
of the Book of Mormon here in North America, is found uh, in a scripture from uh, the Book of Mormon, which talks about the migration of the beasts. In the first scripture found in Ether, chapter 9, verse 34, we read, And it came to pass the people did follow the course of the beasts, and did devour the carcasses of them that fell by the way. The first thing we need to ask ourselves is, where do you find a migration of wild beasts? And what people were following beasts and would eat what they, they found from these beasts? In the second scripture that talks about uh, the migration of these beasts, we read from Alma, chapter 22, verse 31. The wilderness, which is filled with all manner of wild animals of every kind, a part of which had come from the land northward for food. Uh, now, with snow on the ground, I mean, that forces the migration. So you really have to have a seasonal change. And right there in the Book of Mormon, in Alma chapter 22, verse 31, it points out that they migrated, you know, from the land northward. And so it kind of places where the geography of the Book of Mormon is in the Book of Mormon. And then you read from Mosiah chapter 18, verse 4. In the borders of the land, having been infested by times and seasons by wild beasts. Now, if you think of a buffalo, you think of that as a wild beast. But you have to have a migration. And where but only in North America do you have the migration of beasts, which you had hundreds of thousands of buffalo that was migrating. Only in North America do you have that climate change that forces the migration. And actually, Central and South America, the most that they have is kind of an oversized rodent. And you do not have the seasonal uh, climate changes quite like you, you have uh, in North America. And you have the plains on which uh, they migrated on. So with that description and from those scriptures, that describes the American buffalo, which was the major source of protein for the American Indians. So where would you think Alma or Mosiah were standing when they described the migration of beasts? Well, this is a geographical marker. It really points to North America as the place where the Book of Mormon played out. So in my travels and visiting these sites, I traveled on one occasion with Franklin Keel. Dr. Franklin Keel was a director of the Eastern Area Office of the Bureau of Indian Affairs for the U.S. government. He had oversight over 28 Indian nations for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Now, Franklin is a Native American of Chickasha and Choctaw origin. He worked actually for the federal government for some 35 years. In uh, our travels with Franklin, he shared with me a couple of stories that he had learned in visiting these tribal leaders. He stated that the story of wicked King Noah, as found in the Book of Mormon, was a story that had been handed down by these tribal leaders. 
that raids would take place and, and they would carry off women and children. Franklin stated that that story of slave trafficking would be shared over and over again, especially as you get into the Mississippian culture. An example of this was at Kehokia, which has some of the largest mounds found in North America. It's located right across the river from St. Louis. And there they have a monk's mound, which really rivals any mound found in the world, the foundation of it. And this ancient city rivaled Rome in its day, dating from 650 A.D. to 1400 A.D., peaking about 1100 A.D. Kiokia had over 300 ceremonial and burial mounds. And in Mound 72, they uncovered an inner chamber, a dominant burial of what looked to be a ruler laying on some 20,000 shell beads with remains of women who had been sacrificed and laid around this dominant ruler. Now, this screams of slavery. And as Franklin, he was out there visiting these various sites, he said that tribal leaders he, that he would visit with, and he asked the question, well, who built these giant earthen mounds? And they says, well, our people, the Indians. And he says, what? They got up one morning, decided to go and build these massive earthen construction. And he says, no, the snake people came up from the south and enslaved us. And we built these uh, mounds under the yoke of slavery. So did the Olmecs, the Toltecs, the Aztecs, and the Mayans raid the Indian populations in North America and carry them off as slaves? And were these captives taken south? to build their pyramids and great earthen constructions? And if so, like the children of Israel, would they hold to their religious teachings? And would those teachings be manifested in their art and architecture as found in both North, South, and Central America? Thus helping to answer the age-old question as to how religious teachings, practices, and arts would be shared both North, South, and Central America. No wonder that you can find art and architectural depicting Lehi's dream of the Tree of Life, the plan of salvation, and temple symbolisms. But uh, I believe that as a result of slavery, there is found descendants of Lehi, both North, South, and Central America. So how could this be? Well primarily as a result of slavery. So in summary, let me just say that this is a larger history that is laden with implications for our day. As the cancel culture tactics and the social engineering ideologies looking into the evolution and origin of man provided foundational footings used in advancing both social Darwinism and communism, uh, worldwide. As Ben Franklin produced his seal, he recommended that the seal be considered to be the seal of the United States, which depicts Moses leading the children of Israel out of bondage to freedom, stating that rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. It is my hope that we will have the courage to stand for our religious to stand for our liberties, 
and that we will make a study of these ancient cultures that hope we can learn from them. Thank you. Cool. Thanks so much, Steve. Appreciate that. Um, it's really cool to me to see all this. There's a lot of good information here. And I love how everything's lining up to show a lot of similarities and parallels today, right? Like we talked about the cancel culture movement that's going on today. Well, it's already happened, right? It's already been happening. And it's really easy to see, uh, in my opinion, though, how the adversary is working, how he's done it yesterday, how he's doing it today. And, and, and I really love how you brought up, you know, all the things Joseph Smith said. We know where Joseph Smith was at with this. We know what Revelation said. And then we have these, these other men, these scholarly types, right, that are on the opposite end of that spectrum that it seemed to be fighting tooth and nail in direct diametric opposition to everything that Joseph Smith said and that Joseph Smith taught. Um, I think that's really fascinating. This is, this is a lot of, of great information. Um, we're going to have a lot of uh, information to put in the show notes. There's going to be a lot of stuff that I'll get from you that we'll, we'll put into the show notes. Um, where can people go to, to get access to your other uh, materials, to your books, to your documentaries, um, all that other information that we referenced, where can they go to, to get that? Uh, well, i you can find them online. Uh, I know that, uh, Rod Meldrum also, uh, sells them on his bookstore. So bookmormonevidence.org will have all of your stuff on it. Then documentaries, yes. books, all that. Yes. And uh, yeah, our, our book, Lost America's Antiquities, A Hidden History. And our documentary, The Lost Civilizations of North America, are probably the, the two that really look at these uh, ancient civilizations and the silence surrounding ancient cultures. Okay, great. We'll make sure to have all of that in the show notes so people can act, uh, have access to all of that. Thanks again, Steve, for your time today. We appreciate this very much. It's great to be with you. Thank you. There you have it, folks. The work that Steve has done here is truly remarkable. The planning that the adversary did to get to this point is incredible. He truly knew how powerful the Book of Mormon would be. There's no doubt that he orchestrated this by inspiring men like Lewis Henry Morgan and John Wesley Powell to spearhead this narrative that the Native Americans were savages and that no civilized culture existed in North America before the arrival of Christopher Columbus. And mainstream archaeologists still cling to this, even though we have evidence of many other cultures visiting here before Columbus. The same thing happens in other scientific fields, but that's another story for another day. And you can't help but wonder if it was those interactions that Powell had with early members of the church and the Native Americans that caused him to have a bias towards them. Contrary to what you might think, taking the lands from the Native Americans wasn't a particularly popular idea back then not until the Powell Doctrine and Manifest Destiny were pushed on the country. Another interesting thing is how these men were connected with Karl Marx and Charles Darwin. The five men that President Benson said were some of the most evil of our time keep popping up with progressives that fight against church history. Isn't that interesting? I hope this all sheds some light on how Satan has been building his kingdom of lies in the last days. I'll leave it there for another day. That's it for this episode, folks. Remember, you can send your questions, comments, and hate mail to mormontraditionalist at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at mormontraditionalist for more content. And until next time, remember, never back down from the truth.